Well, let's get into the Word of God here. Um, We've come to the final portion of Philippians chapter 3. So turn in your Bible to that chapter. It's my intention for us to cover uh, Philippians 3, 17 to 21 today. And let me just say... um, It is a privilege to be able to work through sequentially through a book of the Bible with you. Um, There are definite advantages to to preaching this way, both for the preacher and the hearer. Uh, You know, when you work section by section, verse by verse, through a passage or a book of the Bible, the preacher never wonders what my next text will be. One, that's one advantage. And you as the hearers will know that the preacher isn't just picking his pet topics, his, his hobby horse topics to preach on, right? He is being forced to deal with the whole counsel of God. And that's the way it should be. If, uh, if we believe what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, if we believe it all to be that, then let's preach it all, Right? Let's believe it all. Let's, let's learn about it all. And um, I think preaching sequentially like this just forces us to deal with every part. And um, I don't think we have to do it this way 100% of the time, but I am a believer in that type of preaching being the, more of the staple of the diet. Okay? I hope you see the value in that. Um, you know, we, we don't just think there's parts of the Bible that we need to know and believe. We want to believe all of it and know all of it to the best of our ability, and this helps us do that. So do you have your Bible open to Philippians 3? Okay. Let's read together verses 17 to 21. The Apostle Paul writes this. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Amen. So in this first portion of our time together, I'd just like to set forth this concept of imitation that Paul gives us here. This idea of following good examples. Paul kind of mentions it here in passing in Philippians, but let's just focus on it for a few minutes to hopefully... See the value of this. You know, we saw the same idea kind of 
implicitly taught back in the end of chapter 2, where Paul presents himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus as men to be imitated in some form or fashion. But here, he kind of states it more plainly. He explicitly says, brothers, join in imitating me. And, and we'll even see that he's not merely talking about himself alone because he goes on to say, there are others whom you can keep your eye on to imitate as well. And in verses uh, 17 and 18, we're presented with some people to imitate and others who were not to imitate. They're the anti-example. They're the negative example, we might say. So, first off, let's just flesh out the idea of imitation in the Christian life just a bit. Paul said there, brothers, join in imitating me. Does that bother anyone? Does Paul show a lack of humility by telling others to imitate him? Let's think about that. Before we answer that, though, we should point out that this isn't the only time he said this. He tells the Corinthians, if you're taking notes, you can jot these down and look them up later. He tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. And he'll say this later in this same book of Philippians, over in chapter 4, verse 9, He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And another time he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. There's other passages we could go to too. Um, But you get the idea. Paul tells a lot of the churches that he's ministered to, hey, imitate me, he says. Live how I live. Think how I think. Talk like I talk. Walk like I walk. Why? Because he's arrogant and he thinks he's arrived? No. No. We know that he doesn't think that way because we just looked at verses 12 and 13 last time where Paul says very clearly that I have not arrived. I am not perfect. I haven't obtained the fullness of where Christ wants me to be. I haven't attained the fullness of Christ's likeness that I've been striving for. I've got a ways to go. So the way that I believe we should see this call to imitate him is more like a father taking the hand of his little son, let's say, and saying, son, do what I do. Step where I step. I'll show you the way. Paul was a spiritual father figure to these believers in these churches. And even an imperfect father can still take his son or daughter by the hand and say, come here, I'll show you how to do this. Right? And Paul very much thought of himself that way as a parent-like figure. He, listen to what he says to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, 
But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And he said to them later on, just a few verses after that to the Thessalonians, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. So, when we see Paul telling the Philippians, the Corinthians, the Thessalonians, and others to imitate him, he's not saying, hey, look at me. I'm the perfect model of Christian faithfulness and sanctification. I have no flaws. No need to look anywhere else. You got it right here. That's not the tone in the Pauline epistles at all. There's always this very tender, father-like care behind this call to imitate him. And I also don't want to downplay Paul's holiness here. We said he's imperfect, and that's true. But Paul was probably one of the most godly men who has ever lived He was an example, an excellent model of faithfulness and godliness, although not a perfect one because there are no perfect ones outside of the Lord Jesus, right? So not only does this come from a fatherly desire in Paul's soul, but as I read earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul only wanted them to imitate him so far as he imitated Christ. We saw that back in chapter 2 of Philippians as well, that the superior example is none other than Christ himself. Look at that with me again. Since you're in Philippians there, just look back one chapter at verses 5 to 11 of chapter 2. Remind ourselves how Paul spoke of Jesus as the epitome of this example to follow. He says... Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So, Paul does not want to usurp the place of Christ as their prime example. Christ is still the epitome in Paul's mind and teaching. But think of this. The people to whom Paul is ministering here, they didn't get to see Jesus. In the Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John which tell us all about Jesus' life, probably weren't widely circulating at this point. So they need a tangible, seeable example of Christ-likeness. And where were they going to get that from? They need to get it, they would get it, from an apostle like Paul. The apostles are the foundation of the church, says Ephesians 2.20. Jesus is the head And he taught them, the apostles, 
And they passed on his teaching and his example to others through their example and their writings. And in addition to all that, Paul even says, there's others to whom you can look and imitate as well. I'm not the only one, he says. Look at that again in verse 17, the second part. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Who is that us there? The example that you see in us would include Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, the other apostles, and just anyone else who's walking according to their example. So he opens this up wider than just himself. So Paul is not trying to put himself up on a pedestal here. He's just trying to lovingly provide an example of Christian living to those who greatly need it. And he says, there's others who are walking like we do as well. Look to them also. So, can I just pause here and ask or say, I wonder who it is that you're looking to as an example in your own life. Do you have anyone in your life like that worthy of imitation? Do you have Christians in your life who you can look at and say, that is a godly man. That is a godly woman. I want to be like that. We need people like that in our lives, don't we? As a matter of fact, Sometimes we learn best by looking at an example who's actually living out their faith, right? Some things are better, what is the saying? Some things are better caught than taught. And I I mentioned that last week, uh, or I mentioned this concept last week, but I want to say it again here. The church provides us these examples. There will simultaneously be in the church people whom you can look up to as an example for you and others to whom you can be the example. They're looking up to you. That is at least part of what it it means to, to be the church. Paul talked elsewhere about the older women teaching the younger women, the older men teaching the younger men, Titus chapter 2. And he talks about pastors and elders being an an example to those under their care. 1 Peter 5, 3. God has set up this multi-generational body of believers called the church, which contains imperfect but still godly examples of Christ-likeness. And we need each other's example to keep going. What a grace of God that is to us. And anyone who would try to isolate themselves away from the church is depriving themselves of one of the greatest blessings and something that is most needed in all the world, something that is very rare and very valuable, namely a godly example. And Paul tells the Philippians to look to him and his co-workers And whomever else is walking according to their example. So my call to you, Christian, today, 
Find the good examples and follow them. And also, be one yourself to others. Be a person who people can look at and say, that is a godly man. That is a godly woman. There's a godly young man, young woman. Be a person to whom we can point our children to and say, son, daughter, that is what a Christian looks like. Imitate him, her. Have you ever uh, had the pleasure of being around another Christian who was so enraptured in the gospel and the scriptures and God himself, that you were just deeply inspired to be like them. Have you had anybody in your life like this? Even if it was just for a moment, maybe they're not somebody you regularly are around, but you got to be around them for long enough to figure out, I want to be like this person. There's a joy there. There's a faith there that I look up to, and it inspires us. I've been around a few people like that in my own life, and what a treasure those people are. What a gift of God those people are. They, they make a bigger impact on us than we might think, don't they? So, with all that said, I just hope this idea of Christian imitation is a positive thing in your mind. I hope the attitude would never be from us, well, my example is Jesus and I don't look to anybody else to guide me or teach me anything because eventually everybody's going to let me down. And there's truth to that. Everybody will let you down except for the Lord Jesus. All fallen men and women are fallible sinners, right? But the one who jumps from that statement to the conclusion of, therefore, no one is worthy of imitation in any way, they'll be missing out on many of God's good gifts to them. God first gave us the Lord Jesus, the ultimate example. Then he gave us the apostles who wrote down what we need to know to live the Christian life and honor God. But he also gives us fellow brothers and sisters who are worthy of imitation as well. He's given us, he's given us lots of them down through church history. We are very blessed to have books we can read about dead saints of past eras who are worthy of imitation. Christian biographies that will bless your soul and inspire you to keep going to be a more godly person. I encourage you to read those. So, now that we've just talked about, in general, this idea of Christian imitation, let's ask this. What is it about Paul that we should imitate? What is it about him that's worthy of imitation? What is he saying? Well, for one thing, he models for us the right things to value. Paul valued Jesus over every other thing. He said, knowing him is of surpassing worth. Nothing comes close. It's considering all things like rubbish compared to Jesus and his redemptive work. I'm thinking of that song 
that we haven't sung in a while, my all in all. You are my strength when I am weak. This is how Paul thought. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You are my all in all. So if we're going to imitate Paul and his gospel co-workers and the other disciples, apostles, and we're going to have... We're going to imitate them. This is what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to view Christ like they viewed Christ. There's the essential key. We're going to have to think of Christ like they thought of Christ. And you say, how are we supposed to do that? How do we find out what they thought? What did they think of Christ? Well, fortunately, we have a pretty detailed set of volumes that tell us exactly what they thought about Christ. It's called the New Testament. It's written by the apostles themselves and their close co-workers, close associates. And it tells us what they saw Jesus do and what they heard him say and what they learned from him and how we should think and live in light of those things. So here's what you and I are supposed to be doing studying the scriptures diligently and constantly asking God in prayer to give us the same view of Jesus as the apostles had as the apostle Paul had show us Christ as he truly is that should be our prayer do you pray that before you read your bible i'll confess to you that i don't every time but we should lord As I sit down to read this, to study this, show me the Lord Jesus in all of his beauty. Not the junior varsity, bobblehead Jesus Jr. that we have in our imagination sometimes. But the real, genuine, sovereign Lord of all. That Lord Jesus, the real one. Show him to us. That should be our constant prayer. So that's primary, uh, cultivating this view of Christ that elevates him above all else. He's the pearl of great price of, for which you'd sell everything just to have him. That is what it means to be of surpassing worth, that he is of surpassing worth. So that's the mindset of Paul and his associates and those following him. That's their attitude toward Christ But what about Paul's mindset toward others? What was worth imitating in his attitudes and dealings with others? Well, basically, Paul and his close associates were, like Jesus, humble people who considered other people's interests. You remember that? They counted others to be more significant than themselves, like chapter 2, verse 3 says and if you're wondering how Paul did that Paul spent his life and his energy preaching the gospel and discipling other Christians and in the process went through tremendous suffering all for their sake shipwreck beatings 
stonings, uh, severe deprivation without food and the basics for long periods of time, imprisonment. He's writing this very letter from prison. Why did he do all of that? We don't have to guess. He tells us. He says he did it all for the sake of God's people. He did it so that the elect of God, the ones whom God had chosen before the foundation of the world, so that they would come to faith in Christ. Listen to his words. I'm not putting words in his mouth. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect and their knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 2.10. So Paul's mindset, and anyone who has fallen in line with his example, was one of both treasuring Christ above all things and counting others more significant than himself. He gave his time, his energy, his effort, his resources, and his very life for the sake of God's people and the furtherance of the gospel to those whom God would one day save. He doesn't know who they are. Neither do we. But we, like him, we are to spread the gospel seed far and wide, and lo and behold, God saves some. Praise God. But that's his mindset. What a man Paul was. He had a mindset worthy of imitation, a mindset that ultimately brings God the glory, right? That's our goal. But let's say this as well. He didn't merely have just a mindset. He actually lived it out. I've known people, I've probably been one of them myself, who come under conviction of some sin and we feel righteous just acknowledging that we need to change, but we stop there. The Lord's working on me, and it's like, he, it's like that's all he wants me to do is just acknowledge where I'm falling short, but not, let's go forward and do something about it, right? Paul had the mindset, and he actually lived it out. We teach a song to our kids at the Awana ministry. God willing, we'll be able to get back to that in his good timing. But the song says, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. You cannot hide what's inside. It's sure to come out. Your words may whisper, but your actions shout. That's so true, isn't it? It's not what we say we believe that makes the biggest impact. It's a life that actually lines up with what we say we believe. That's a powerful combination. And it's not that what we say isn't important. Goodness, no. What we have to say as Christians is extremely important. We have the gospel of Christ. And that is a gospel, that is a message that has to be shared with words by necessity. It's a message, an announcement of what Christ has done for sinners. It's made up of doctrine, right? Teaching about God and Christ and man and so forth. You can't share the gospel just by living 
as living a certain way. The gospel will not be shared that way. You can be kind, but so can Mormons. You can be a good neighbor, so can an atheist, right? You can be a good citizen, so can a Buddhist. You can live a respectable, moral life, and yet you still, and we still, haven't really done anything distinctly Christian. Other people who aren't Christian can do those things, in other words. But it's what we have to say that really makes the difference. We have the gospel to proclaim. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, according to Romans 1.16. So, I said all that to say, it's not, our, it's not that our talk doesn't matter. It's just what we really want is our talk to match our walk. And that's what Paul did. He didn't stop short at the talk. He followed through with the walk. A good godly example does that, right? They practice what they preach, we say. You know, we have that saying sometimes, maybe you've been showing somebody at work something and nobody does it right or something, and you tell them, this is the way you're supposed to do it, but just do as I say, not as I do. That's the saying. Do as I say, not as I do. And, you know, that's what we say when we're trying to teach somebody the right way to do it, but we know that our own example is going to undermine the very thing that we're showing them. But that's not how Paul thought. Paul's mindset propelled him to live accordingly. He just tirelessly preached and taught and prayed and worked and labored for the glory of God and for the benefit of God's people. That was Paul's aim in all of life, to bring God glory by serving his people and evangelizing the lost. So there's kind of Paul's life in a nutshell, maybe. His thinking and his living. Or you could say his passion and his practice. Now, notice where he goes from there in verses 18 and 19. Right after he says he wants them to imitate him, he says, there are some. Many, actually, is what he says, according to verse 18. Many, in fact who are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. These are the ones that we don't want to imitate. The passion and the practice of these people, Paul says, brings him even to tears. And I understand this warning to be about people who actually claim to be Christians. In other words, he's not just warning them, hey, don't follow unbelievers. They would know not to do that. He's saying there are some who name the name of Christ whose lives don't match up with their claim. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You can see, feel Paul's heart here. The thought of people taking on the name of Christ, calling themselves Christians, yet living contrary to what he taught, grieved Paul greatly. 
to the point where he wept over them. Paul had a very tender heart for people. We read about it several times in Scripture of Paul weeping over people, caring for the lost. But let's look at what these people were actually doing. Overall, kind of the overall summary of them is that they were enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the gospel. And it's not clear if he's referring to the Judaizers that he talked back in verse 2 about. Or, you know, those who preach the circumcision and so forth. Or if these are perhaps other itinerant preachers who would come through from time to time. Or if it was some other group. We don't know for sure. We don't really need to know who they were as much as we need to know what they were doing. And we can see what's true about them here in verse 19. He lists four things about them. Four things. First of all, their end is destruction, he says. Second of all, their God is their belly. Thirdly, they glory in their shame. And fourthly, their minds are set on earthly things. So everything, if you notice there, everything about them is opposite of how a Christian should look. That's why these people are the negative for us. They're the negative example, the anti-example. And this is why... Oh, this is why biblical literacy, us knowing our Bibles and discernment, this is why those things are important in the Christian life. We can't just pick any old person who claims to be a Christian and try to follow them or learn from them. Be careful what you read. Be careful what you're listening to. Because someone names the name of Christ doesn't necessarily mean they should be imitated. We see that example right here. Let's go through those four things in verse 19. Let's actually start with the second one. Because I believe the first one is the result. And the other ones are kind of symptoms. So, first, their God is their belly. This means that they don't want to serve the true God. At least by their actions, they show that they don't. They just want to satisfy their own appetites. Their God is their belly. And that word belly can even have the shade of meaning of a sexual appetite. And it also has just the general meaning of just fleshly appetites in general. Their concern isn't God or others like the apostles or Jesus. Their main concern is me, myself, and I. What do I want? What do I desire? That's what I'm going after. That was true of these anti-example people. The third one he mentions there in verse 19 is they glory in their shame. So what should be shameful to them, they actually glory in it. This harkens back to a verse in Isaiah, doesn't it? Isaiah 5, 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
Woe to those people who flip that around, the prophet said. What they should be ashamed over, they're proud of. It's a total lack of holiness in their lives. The fruit of their lives is just full of shameful things. The fourth thing he mentions is the fact that their their minds are set on earthly things. Their mindset, like we talked about earlier, their mindset is, is not based on what's to come, eternity. It's based on the here and now, earthly things. They've, they've got this invisible box around them. It's not invisible to them. It, they're boxed in on all sides. All they care about is what's right here around them. Their comfort, their pleasure, Their immediate wants and needs, they have no concern past the wall of the here and now to the eternity or to heavenly things. And the result of all that is what he says first in verse 19. Their end. This is where these type of things will take you. Their end is destruction, he says. The outcome of that way of life is not peace, Or pleasantness, it's disaster. Just to say it frankly, the most frank way I know how to say it is the outcome of living that way is hell. These things characterize people who are who are hell bound. They're enemies of the cross. No matter what they might profess to believe. Their lives show what they really believe. And when you consider someone's end, and I use that word like he means it there, their destination, their end. When you consider somebody's end, it really puts into perspective whether or not you should be imitating them, doesn't it? A good question to ask, where will this path take that person? And do I want to be on that path? There's a man in the Bible named Asaph. And he wrote the 73rd Psalm. Turn there, actually. Hold your place in Philippians, though, because we'll come right back to it in a minute. Turn to Psalm 73. Let's see what Asaph wrote. All down through here, Asaph, just giving you some background here because we're not going to have time to read the whole psalm. All down through here, he's looking at the wicked and he sees how much they prosper. Have you ever done that? Have you ever become jealous of people because they have lots of money? They seem to have an easy, problem-free life. And yet you know they don't live for God. You just want what they have. It's probably been true of all of us at some point. Asaph did that. And it became very depressing to him. Look at it. Let's, let's skim the chapter. I'll try to tell you where I'm reading these phrases from. We're going to kind of go quickly. Verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. 
Their bodies are fat and sleek. Fat in the Bible means something different than what we mean, by the way. It means they have an overabundance. They're well supplied. Verse 5, they don't have trouble as others do. They've got everything seemingly. They seem to have all sorts of blessings. Yet, verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Verse 11, they mock God saying, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? In other words, does he even know what's happening? Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Then notice Asaph's honesty about his momentary lapse of judgment here in verse 13. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. It's in vain. In other words, I've tried to do what's right before God. Look at where it got me compared to them. But notice his return to sound thinking very quickly. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end, he says. Verse 19. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors. It's talking about the judgment of God coming down on them. In verse 22, he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. In other words, God, I didn't know what I was talking about, but I see it now. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire Besides you. That's Asaph's words and his testimony. So he was tempted, as the psalmist here, to envy the wicked because it seemed like they were prospering. And they were in the immediate. They were at ease. Yet he says, when I discerned their destination, their end, oh, that woke me up. I came to my senses. They don't have God. They're hellbound. So, in all their stuff, they've got everything except what's most important. These people aren't to be envied, they are to be pitied. Why would I envy them? Why would I want to imitate them? God is going to utterly destroy them, he says. In our passage today, in Philippians 3, it reminds us of that idea. Who should we model our lives after? Who is it that's worthy of imitation? The godly are over here suffering and being persecuted, whereas these people are just, they're doing whatever feels good. They don't seem to have too many troubles. But it, this situation might appear one way, right? But the bottom line is, where is their destination? Where is their end? And Paul says there in verse 19, I'm back in Philippians now. Paul says in verse 19, their end is destruction. 
It's important to discern someone's end before we envy them or try to imitate them. You know, hardship in this life will be very short to to be compared to destruction that the wicked are going to one day face for all of eternity. So on that day, oh, on that day, they would gladly trade a thousand lifetimes of hardship and persecution and suffering if they could just have happiness and peace in that eternity, right? The end is crucial. And I notice here, that's how the chapter ends. He's, he's given us the end destination of these who don't walk in the way of Christ but instead walk only seeking to fulfill their own wicked desires. And now, in verse 20, he gives us the end of the godly. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. Now we see the overall argument here, and it's this. Imitate me, Paul says, and others who are walking in the way of Christ... Don't be tempted to imitate others who might look like they're having a good time. No, look at where they're going. Their end is destruction, but our end is heaven. We're citizens of heaven. Isn't that a powerful thought? That's why I chose the title of the message, Consider Their End. Have you ever been tempted like Asaph? to envy so-called successful, unbelieving people. I have. If we're honest, we probably all have at some point. In our weakness, in our lack of sound thinking, we've done so. Man, it must be nice to have money like that. must be nice to have that kind of car, that kind of house. Must be nice to look like that, that guy, that girl. Everybody loves them. Must be nice to be famous like they are. Must be nice to have that kind of talent. The list goes on and on. The fact of the matter is, if the person we're looking at is without Christ, then the poorest, ugliest, least known Least famous, least talented Christian actually has infinitely more riches than that person has. It just hasn't been revealed yet. The end is coming, though. Life is just so short compared to eternity. We'd much rather, much rather be rich in eternity and in spiritual things that matter for eternity than to be rich here Right? For this little sliver of time. I thought this little sentence, this little illustration puts this short life into perspective. You ever been to a really, you ever stayed a night in a really bad, cheap motel? And you had a pretty bad experience? (laughs) Seemed pretty rough when you're going through it, when you're laying there, right? But 10 years from that point, you look back and you just kind of laugh and tell lighthearted stories about it. It was one night. 
Nothing in the grand scheme of your life. And one author put it like this. This life, in light of eternity, will be nothing more than a bad night in a cheap hotel. (laughs) That sums it up. The important thing to discern is the end. Where is this person headed? What is their destination? Are they glorifying God or are they just glorifying themselves? We ought not envy people who have the least amount of troubles now. It's eternity that's more important. Let's imitate those who have their citizenship in heaven, right? He says there in verse 20, we heavenly citizens are awaiting a savior to come from there, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's gonna return and bring his people home and then it will be abundantly clear whose lives were worth imitating. Let's just close today by thinking about what he says here in verses 20 to 22. Paul, speaking of the end of these faithful ones, says that the Lord Jesus Christ, take a breath because we don't appreciate this sentence. Appreciate it. He's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is exciting to think about. It's good to think about. Paul thought about it. It was a big motivation for him. This is the sure hope of the resurrection. I'm not talking about Jesus' resurrection. I'm talking about his resurrecting of us one day at the end of the age. This is what's coming for every believer. Paul says Jesus is going to one day change all Christians' bodies into ones like Jesus' glorified body. That is a magnificent thought. Our bodies now, they're lowly. That's what the word, what, he, what, what word he uses there. That means they're, they're subject to all kind of weakness. Can anybody identify with weakness? Uh, they're subject to disease, sickness, hunger, sin, yes, even death. But one day, Jesus is going to transform our bodies. And I think some of us make the mistake of thinking that we're going to one day just be these spirits in heaven with no body. But that's not what Scripture teaches. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And we're going to live in it with real, transformed bodies. Just like Jesus' body. What's that going to be like? We're going to be like Jesus' resurrected body. We're going to get a body like his one day. And we won't be gods by any stretch of the imagination. Nor does it mean that we'll physically look like Jesus as if he's going to have clones physically. No. 
We're going to have the characteristics of Christ's resurrected body. That means, I mean, just to name a few, no sin, no suffering, no sickness, no tiredness, no aches, no pains, no cancer, no dementia, no COVID, and no death, no more aging, death-proof bodies. Can you imagine? Read later 1 Corinthians 15, verses 43 to 57. Read that whole thing. It talks about this new body. It says our bodies, I'll just give you some of it. It says our bodies are sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. And it says in verse 49, this same concept that Philippians is teaching us. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You've seen those makeover shows on TV? You know, the ones where they take, uh, shall we say, a rather plain-looking person, maybe, <laughs> and they just totally revamp them, their look, you know, give them a new haircut, uh, give them a, some new clothes. If they're a man, maybe give them a nice shave. If they're a woman, maybe they give them a new uh, makeup scheme or something. And they come out and they reveal themselves and their loved ones just can't believe it. It's an impressive, beautiful transformation that has taken place. That is nothing compared to what we are going to experience. You want to talk about a makeover? This will be a makeover on steroids. And I wish I could say more about the resurrection body, but we might be here for a while. And there's things even that Scripture doesn't tell us and we can speculate about and we can talk about. I would love to do that with anybody who wants to, but, you know, some of it's speculation. We don't want to go too far into speculation. All I know is this is going to be glorious. It'll be unlike anything we can imagine. Imitate us, Paul says, because what Jesus is going to do to us is going to be glorious. Don't be duped by others whose end is destruction. Our end is heaven where Jesus makes us new. He's got the authority and the power to pull this off, he says. Verse 21, he's going to do it by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's his sovereign power over everything. That power is going to do this for his people. This is a transformation that none of you want to miss out on, okay, to say the least. If you don't know Christ today, there is good news. You can get in on this. <laughs> if you're not too proud to have the Lord Jesus, he will save you, forgive you of all your sins today. And then you will have this amazing transformation to look forward to along with all the wonderful promises of the word of God. Flee the coming destruction. Flee to Christ.
is my word to you. If you're a Christian today, though, imitate godly people who make God's glory their goal. Consider their end, their destination. And the destination and the final state of God's people is absolutely mind-blowingly gorgeous, glorious. I'm at a loss of adjectives. And I hope you are inspired as well to look for godly people to imitate. And I hope you're striving to be that kind of person who others can imitate. And I just, I hope you're ecstatic, really, over what's coming down the pipe for us. Nothing short of sheer glory. So let's worship him for being so good to us, shall we? Amen. Let's pray. Father, when we read these promises like this, where you promise to give us bodies like Jesus' glorified body, we, we don't even know how to act. It blows my mind. And we don't understand all the details of how that's going to work it out or how it's going to be worked out, but we, we know enough to know that it's, it sounds amazing. And to think that all this is made possible by our Savior who's coming back again to get us from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that encourages us this morning greatly. We praise him today. We bow the knee to him today. We confess him to be the sovereign Lord of all today. We're blown away by your grace to us. That you would make the end of our journey this good is marvelous to us. We, along with the songwriter, just say, What can I do but offer you praise? Help us to offer you that praise, Father. Not just with our words, not with empty words, but with filled words, with our very hearts and lives behind them. Help us to strive towards Christ-likeness. It's what you have destined us for, according to Romans 8, 29. Change us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, through your Word. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.